So, back in the early 70s, there was a TV series called Planet of the Apes. Probably some of you, some of you weren't alive in the early 70s, uh, but some of you probably remember it. I loved it. I remember watching it even though I was very young. And there, there's this one scene that is a classic that I remember watching when I was watching TV. And it's even, if you go to Internet Movie Database, they still talk about this scene. It was that classic. So, what happened was, Urko, Urko was sort of the military leader of the apes, and he had captured a human and gave him a choice. And the choice was, I'll kill you, I'll beat you and kill you, or you can go with Wanda, the, the, the ape scientist, the head, the head of, of, of research, who was actually sort of a human sympathizer, and she will, you will be subject to an experiment by her. So Wanda had found some old human medical books that talked about brainwashing. And so she was going to brainwash. So here's the scene. Urko says, ah, yes, I seem to remember hearing something vaguely about that, brainwashing. Isn't that where you take the brain out of the skull and wash it with cool water? And Wanda says, no, no, you don't take the brain out of the skull. And Urko says, you don't? Well, how can you wash the brain if you don't take it out of the skull? It's a classic scene. And why I like it so much, it speaks to the challenges we face when we try to understand things from a different place, time, culture. And for us Christians, this is an especially important challenge to be aware of and engage. Because let's face it, we base our faith on a book that was written thousands of years ago by people of a very different culture and a very different time. And it's easy to read these stories and assume, oh, we know what they mean simply because we recognize some of the things in them. And in some stories, there are things that have the same meaning today in our culture as they did thousands of years ago in a different culture. For example, in our text this morning, the head, the head waiter comes and says, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. Well, we all know what that means. You have a number of drinks, and your taste is not that discerning anymore, right? So we, we get that. We can accept, access that. The challenge comes in when we think that just because we can access a certain part of the story, we can access all of it. And that's when we run the risk of becoming a little bit like Urko and thinking that we take brains out of skulls and, and wash them and what have And I think we saw this last week. So this is our third week looking at this story, for those of you who are visiting. And last week we saw that weddings then and there are not at all like weddings here and now. Weddings here and now, you know, three hours at the most, and people are headed out. And there, in, in that time and place and culture, they were seven days long, and, and other things that we looked at. But by learning last week more about the weddings there, we, we learned, we learned more about what this story. So today, I want to explore another detail of the story that requires the same careful attention to differences in time and place. All right, what we're going to look at today is these six stone water jars. A quick reading of the story may make us think they're just six big water pots. And even if we read John's qualifier, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, it might still not make a lot of sense to us. Because honestly, how much does the average modern Christian really know about ancient Jewish ceremonial washing? Probably very little. But we need to understand this. Because if we don't understand these washing pots, the story it is much less. These six stone washing pots actually are very central to the story. Jesus could have said to the servants, hey, go back behind the bar. You missed them. 
And when they got behind the bar, they could have just seen all this wine. Or he could have said, just keep putting water in people's glasses, and every time they drink it, it'll be wine. Don't worry about it. <coughs> There's so many things that he could have done. But instead, he said, no, fill the six stone water pots that are used for Jewish purification. All right? Ceremonial washing was an important part of Jewish faith in that time and culture. Very important. In fact, we see this in Mark's Gospel when the Pharisees question the legitimacy of Jesus' teachings because his disciples don't wash. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? So his disciples are not doing ceremonial washing, and some of the religious leaders are genuinely scandalized by this. Scandalized. From the beginning of time, washing was a vital element of their faith. In fact, early commentaries on the Torah suggest that after Adam was thrown out of the Garden of Eden, he sat in a river that flowed from the Garden, and that was part of his repentance and purification process. Okay? So washing was essential in their approach to God. It was essential. And this being a wedding, there would have been a lot of ceremonial washing on the hands of part of the celebration. Okay, so... There's some background. So now let's look at the qualifying details that John gives us about these six stone water jars. These are important to have rumbling around the brain as, as we continue to, to talk about this this morning. Number one, he calls them stone. That's important for a couple reasons. One is if, if, it, if, if they couldn't use pottery because pottery absorbs impurities. So then the jars would become impure. Second, the fact that it was stone is that the base material was not man-made. That's another important part of these water pots. Two, John tells us they were large, 20 to 30 gallons each. That's 180 gallons of wine Jesus made after the wine they had ran out. Let me put that in perspective. Okay? The average American keg is 15 and a half gallons. 12 kegs of wine he made. Now, he probably made... Six extras because he's the one who brought the five drunk fishermen who drank most of it. But this is a lot. This is a lot of wine he made. 180 gallons. <coughs> Six is the number of man in Scripture. For Jewish people at that time, seven was the perfect or complete number. So referencing six would have immediately caught a reader's attention from that time and culture as a commentary on the imperfection of ceremonial washing. And also, Jesus had to say to them, fill them up with water. They weren't full. Another commentary on the emptiness or incompleteness of this religious act at that time. This is how spectacular the book of John is. I love these little details. And another thing he does is, this event is placed firmly at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And John, who is the only one to reference this miracle, he got it. He got what was going on. And he used it to set the theme of his book and to explain the parable that is the life of Christ. The parable that is the life of Christ is redemption. Redemption means improving of something, especially in the sense of making it acceptable by buying it back. Restoring its reputation by buying it back. In other words, the old 
is transformed into the new again. All right, so here's how John starts his book. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Tabernacled is, is the word in the original. So what is happening here is what the Old Testament tabernacle was about, Jesus is improving. Jesus improves. He becomes the tabernacle among us. All right, John then states, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus <coughs> improves Old Testament sacrifice by replacing all the sacrificial animals, the lambs of sacrifice that they use. In John chapter 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Notice what he's doing. He's talking about his own body. He transforms the temple from a building to a person. And in our text, Jesus transforms the means of purification. It is not by water from jars. It is by wine from his body. And John will help us gather all of that imagery in his first letter. He said the blood of Jesus' his son purifies us from all sin. And Jesus was very clear on the night, on the last night with his disciples that we quote every, every day, this is my blood shed for you. Okay? The wine is his blood. So notice this brilliance of composition by John. He starts his entire book with the water of man's law being turned into the wine of God's grace, and at the end he captures it perfectly. One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. It's, it's a spectacular book. I, I, I said before, I, I mean, as, as incredible as Paul's composition is, I, I, I think this book of John's is, is just magnificent to spend time in. So, there's some background. But here's the thing we need to be very careful. Very, very careful. Because how we understand this and how we explain this can be very anti-Semitic. It can be very hurtful and hateful toward Jewish people. In fact, one of the most frustrating things to me, because I love the book of John so much, is the way the book of John has often been treated. It is often interpreted in such a way that has been used throughout Christian history as a reason to be anti-Semitic, or at least anti-Judaism. But can we recognize the obvious before we go down that road? Religion does not save. Jesus does. That's what we think in our religion. And Jesus was Jewish. His scripture was the Jewish scripture. It is ludicrous to say then, that he, a faithful Jew, was anti-Semitic or anti-Judaism. I don't believe he was, nor do I believe he was intent on destroying his faith and the faith of his people. But see, that's an easy interpretation for Christians because it feeds into our pride. We look at this story and say, oh, the jars of water are Judaism and the wine is Christianity. We're perfect, they're not. I don't think that's an accurate interpretation or understanding of this miracle and this text at all. <coughs> Let's consider it from a different perspective. Let's call the jars of water legalism, what I often call transactionalism, you know, where you transact with God to get him to love you. You do things so God will accept you. Okay? And then let's call the wine of Christ grace. Now it begins to make more sense, the story, doesn't it? 
maybe. Of course, the story is not so safe anymore. See, as soon as we throw this word grace around, it's just <laughs> everything. It, it's just the grace is an ugly word. Remember last week we discovered this story wasn't so safe either? Because last week what we saw was that it is an invitation to give everything we have to love others. Remember, this miracle that we learned in Sunday school, he just turned water into wine, was so much bigger than that. It was his first sign that he was the Messiah. And his claims to being the Messiah led to one thing, crucifixion. Betrayal by his friends, horrible suffering, death by crucifixion. He gave everything to turn this water into wine. To save a wedding, which, again, we learned that last week was a huge deal, but I'm not going to transgress. I want to stay with these jobs. And now, if we look at this as it's, if we look at this, that this is grace, the wine of Jesus is grace, the water is legalism, now it's not a safe story either, because now it's an invitation to examine our own lives for legalism for pride, for dead religion. So what I believe Jesus is saying through this miracle is that God's grace has always been and always will be the only way someone can be redeemed. Salvation has always and will always come only by grace. Peter and John both assert that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Christ, the Lamb without blemish or defect, He was chosen before the creation of the world, the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. So while the cross is a specific moment in our time and place, it has always been constant in God's reality. The writer of Hebrews was quite clear that since the beginning of time, man has been saved by grace as received through faith. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And then you just keep on reading Hebrews 11. So in this miracle, Jesus is saying, I think, that the sacrifice and the washing that the Israelites were taught were intended not to save, not to manipulate God into loving them, not a transaction. But the sacrifices and the washing were to be legitimate responses to salvation. Thanksgiving rituals, if you will, for God's saving love and grace. So prior to the cross, people were to have faith in a coming Messiah that would reveal to them God loves them and His grace alone saves them. So their faith in that grace would be evidenced by these practices of sacrifice, of cleansing, and if you read the Old Testament carefully, by loving others. Have you ever thought about the Old Testament? The Israelites were freed from Egypt before they were given the law. ever thought about that? God didn't show up and give the Israelites the law and say, follow this and I'll free you from Egypt. 
Think about that. Let that be purposeful. Because it is. He showed up and freed them because he freed them. Period. Nothing they did. And then after he said, and here's how you can thank me. By living like this. And in the New Testament and in our faith, it's the exact same. It starts with the cross and then Christian ethics. We are to look back to a cross that saved us and have faith in that Messiah that saves us by grace alone. And then that faith is evidenced in our lives by such practices of breaking bread together, of following certain Christian ethics, of loving others. Or as Paul said, seek not our own good, but the good of the other. That's the proper response to God's saving grace. But when our practices become the means of salvation, or the means of trying to please God, then I think we've put our faith in a different Messiah. Mainly one that looks just like us. There's a word for that. What? What is that word? Totalism? Mike, no. Totalism. It's about, um, it's a reference to building totem poles. And they become more and more looking like you. I'll find that word. I'll bring it in next week. I just figured Mike and Dave would And I think this is what Jesus found among his own tradition when he came. They have changed the beautiful story of people being saved by God's amazing grace and thanking him for it and turned it into empty man-made rituals. Man trying to save themselves with their own self-righteousness. Here's a sad thing. Most of their rituals came from their scripture. But over time and over centuries, as the freedom from Egypt got further and further away, these stories had been twisted, they had been added to, misunderstood, and now lacked the very heart of the matter. And the, and the proof was in the rejection of the Messiah they were supposed to believe in. Some folks just did not think Jesus was he because he had reduced their religion to man trying to appease God. But Jesus showed up and spoke a different message, grace. And I think it has become the same thing in Christianity. And it even happened in the early church. Paul had to tell the people, the believers in, in his letter to the Galatians, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. It happened back then. hundred years out. Why? Because grace. Grace is so hard. It's so hard to believe in. It's so hard to live. Because grace means we have to love our enemies. We can't kill them. And on and on and on grace goes. 
So I think if Jesus were to come again today in the same way, I'm pretty sure he'd have to perform another miracle like this one to expose the emptiness of our own faith tradition. So much of what we do is no longer faith in God's grace. It is faith in our ability to make him happy. Or to be good enough for him. Or where it really hits a lot of us is it's faith in our ability to know enough of the right things for him to save us. But that's nothing but empty legalism. And the worst part is, not only do we practice this form of legalism, we teach it and promote it as Christianity, and then we use scripture to support it. And we assume we are fine, because after all, we know Jesus was the real Messiah. Well, do we really? Do we? Oh, I know we use his name a lot. But if the Jesus Christ we're talking about doesn't look like this, are we really putting our faith in the right Messiah? Jesus came and poured out his life, poured out his life for others, for us, for us. When I said earlier, grace is such an ugly word, I, I didn't mean it. I meant, what you know, you know. I meant because it's so hard to live grace. But the beauty of grace is it's for us. Even, even if we're very legalistic and even if we've turned it all round, he still loves us, he still died for us, he still welcomes us. That's the beauty of grace. He came and he poured his life out for others and he asked us, follow him. Follow him in that. He lived and taught that grace is the answer, not legalism. You know, when we tell people they have to do certain things to be accepted by God, whew, we are really preaching a different gospel that St. Paul was warning the Galatians about. we got to get away from that. we just got to tell people God loves them. Even if we don't. Even if we hate them, Tito. God loves them. It is an ugly word. It is an ugly word, then, Grace. <laughs> if rules could save us, Jesus never would have turned this water into wine. But if grace is the only thing that can save us, then perhaps we should not insist on throwing away his wine and going back to the water. It may be true that when Jesus came, he did find some of his tradition lacking. But that shouldn't be our focus as Christians. Our focus should be on what would he find if he came to our tradition today. People celebrating the wildness of God's grace or people living under the delusion of legalism. People drinking the wine of gladness or washing in the water of lifeless living. People living... Like, where is he? This Messiah. In response to his love for us. Or people live, look, living like a Messiah that looks a lot like themselves. Let's move into grace. Not just on the receiving end. That's the start. 
move into God's grace for us, absolutely. Come to this table this morning, no matter what is going on in your life today. Come to this table. And thank God for loving us just the way we are. This table changed for me. I was brought up in a very... in a tradition that it was easy to understand as legalistic. And this table was used as a place where, and I know some of you have heard this before, but it's worth repeating. This table in my life when I was young was used as a place where I had to be good enough to come to it. And then one day I was reading uh, Michael Card. Michael Card is a Christian musician, a great Christian musician. And he was at college. <coughs> and he went to a local church one Sunday morning. And the minister of the church stood up before communion. And he said, it was college town. <coughs> he said, so here's the deal. I know there's a bunch of you sitting here that probably had sex last night. I know there's a bunch of you sitting here that probably hung over. And I know there's a bunch of you sitting here that no doubt plagiarized something this week or cheated on an exam, stole something from your roommates. <coughs> and Michael Card was waiting for it. He was just waiting for him to say, and so don't come up. And the minister said, and I want you all to know, this table is for you. The tradition I've been brought up in kept me from believing that for another 10 years. But I finally broke through by grace to the grace of this table. It's the most beautiful part of our faith. Grace is so big, it's for us. We're going to celebrate communion in a few minutes. Come to this table. Thank God for loving us. Today, where we're at. Let's move into grace. Let's drink the wine. Let's love the real Messiah. And while we're at it, let's love each other. Amen. Lord, make